Good morning, everybody. It's nice to see you. Our key scripture this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What kind of words encourage you? What do you like other people to say to you? What kind of things really make you happy when someone says them? Well, it probably depends on who it's coming from, right? Uh, For example, from your spouse, you probably want to hear all different kinds of encouragement, from maybe how nice you looked that day to how well you did something around the house or in the yard to how hard you worked for your family or whatever it may be. Uh, From your boss, you want to know that they appreciate the work that you're doing and that you're doing a good job. Uh, Although we may deny it and say, you know, I really don't need much encouragement, the truth is that we all like to be encouraged. We all like to be recognized. We all like to have kind words come our way. But have you ever had a backwards compliment? You know what I'm talking about? A backhanded one is maybe what I was trying to say there. You look really nice today. Well, what what does that mean? Does that mean, uh, or I had someone say to me last week, I really like your hair the way it used to be. Trellis. <laughs> hey, Don, can you turn me up just a little bit? Because I'm having to yell. Thank you. In this first passage, Paul gave a great deal of encouragement to the church in Ephesus, and he told them that they have been doing a great job of being faithful to God. And it's always encouraging to hear something like that from someone, for someone to actually say, I have heard about your faith far and wide, and I am encouraged and blessed by you. And as a church, that is really good news. That's the kind of thing that you want to hear. But then, Paul gave them the greatest encouragement of all, although it doesn't necessarily seem like encouragement to them. He asked God to give them wisdom and revelation to know him better. He asked God that the eyes of their hearts would be opened in order that they would know what God is calling them to. Now, wait a second. 
if their faith has gone out far and wide and people are talking about what a great community they are, then why does Paul feel the need to say that God would give them wisdom and that the eyes of their hearts would be opened? Do they not know who God is? Are their hearts closed to God and that's why the, heart, the eyes of their hearts need to be opened? Is this encouragement or is this criticism coming from Paul? Well, it's definitely encouragement. How? Because Paul knew that if they realized just how much power was available to them in Jesus, their lives would be even better than they were in that moment. That they would be filled with even more faith and they would become even more dynamic for the kingdom. So in a way to, as a way to encourage them, he tells them how great they are, but then he tells them what they really need to hear. How great Jesus is. How great Jesus is. And here's what he tells them. Jesus is powerful beyond comparison. This power that raised him from the dead is available to them. All things have been put under his feet. He has all rule and authority and power and lordship and his name is above every name. And this is the best thing that he could tell any community of faith. Not how great they are, but how great Jesus is. Because Jesus is the head of the church and as his people... Everything that Jesus has, the power, the grace, the love, all of that is available to his people. And if you think that you are living a good life right now, if you think that you have reached the apex of who you are as a Christian, you're wrong. You're wrong. Because in Jesus Christ, there is unlimited possibility and opportunity and power because he is above all things. So what would you rather hear? You're doing great, keep it up. Or you're doing great and God can do more through you. Because everything that he wants for you is available to you. God wants to give you the wealth and glory of his inheritance, the full greatness of his power. And it makes me realize, again, the best encouragement I can receive shouldn't be about me. It should be about how great God is and how unreservedly he will shower me with his love and blessing and power because he loves me. And that there is no one more powerful than Jesus. And Jesus is on our side. And that church encourages me to do better. I see his love and mercy 
washing over all our All right, everyone. <clears throat> so uh, I found this in my uh, one of my little boxes that I keep stuff in the other day. Uh, on the front, in bubble writing, it says, To Bryce. And this is a letter that was written to me by Nisha on May 7th, 2001. So that was, that was a while ago. Um, uh, 2001 is the year that we got married. We got married on August 4th of that year. And this particular uh, letter was written while we were living in Virginia. And um, I, had, uh, I had gone away for something, and Nisha had had a really difficult time while I was away. And so she left me this note uh, for when I got back from wherever it was I was at, I don't really remember, uh, telling me how much she loved me, how much she missed me, um, and how hard it was what, for her while I was gone. And um, then she talks about uh, how our life will be together and how grateful she is that that God uh, brought us together. It's a special letter to me, this letter is. Now, if a hundred years from now, someone read this letter, what would they think? They would think that Nish and I love each other, right? And they would be right for most of the time. We do love each other most of the time. But if they were to take this letter and they were to say, this is what a normal relationship was like for someone living in Virginia in the year 2001, and it's now 2101, 2201, let's even add some time to it. Let's say it's 2,000 years later. And if they try to take this note and to learn everything about relationships 2,000 years from now, would they learn everything there is to know about a relationship? No. Why not? Because this was a letter written from a woman to her fiancé when she was 20 years old, before we had gotten married, and before we had children. So, while there are some encouraging things in this note, and while it's encouraging to me, what does it teach other people about relationships? Not a whole lot, right? Sometimes when I think about what we're trying to do when we study um, these letters of, from the Bible, these letters that Paul wrote or that were written to Timothy or written to these different places, you know, what's really interesting and something that we don't often think about is that these were letters that were written to a specific group of people in a specific place at a specific time and they were having specific issues. And what are we trying to do 2,000 years later? We are trying to take this and pull everything into our context and make these universal messages that go for everyone, everywhere, at all times, right? And so it's kind of like Jeopardy. We have the answers... But what are we supposed to figure out sometimes? What is the question? 
And that's something we need to remember as we go through these letters. Now, here are some things that we saw in Ephesians chapter 1. We saw that Paul uh, started out by, again, encouraging the community. Um, and he wanted to point some specific things out to this group. He wanted to point out to them that as followers of Jesus Christ, they are adopted into God's family. That they were called even into this place and into that time to uh, serve God and to be his representatives, to go out and to represent his family and who he is and what he is all about. And because they are a part of God's family, they have an inheritance that is coming to them. One day God is going to come back to this place. Jesus will return and God will unify and bring together all things under Jesus. All things will be restored. All things will be made new. God will be living with his people and they will be his once more. And so as children of God, this is something that they are going to receive. So they have much to look forward to. But there's even more to it than that, you see. Because God has already given them a deposit on what it is that they will receive. The Holy Spirit has been passed on to them and is living inside of them. So remember, the promised inheritance that is to come is God living with his people and all things being restored. And what is the Holy Spirit? It is God's presence living where? So it's like a small taste a small taste of what this means when God is going to unify everything under Jesus Christ, to bring everything together. And the Spirit, God's presence living in them, is going to give them all that they need as they go out and represent God in this world. Because remember, what is it that God wants more than anything else? He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So the calling that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1 is not a calling out of certain people to leave other people behind. It's a calling out of certain people to go out and tell everyone else about what they can become as well. But who is this rhetor, rhetor written to? You got that? Good. I'm glad you're staying with me. Well, here's something that's interesting about uh, this letter. I know, and if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, just to give you a, a quick point of reference here. Um, I know that it says uh, to the church in Ephesus in chapter 1, but here's what's interesting about that. This letter may not have been addressed specifically to the church in Ephesus at all. Uh, not all of the early manuscripts of the letter of Ephesians has that prescript on it. Uh, which is kind of unusual in a letter that's written by Paul to not have that. Uh, and it also is missing some other kind of normal characteristics that a letter from Paul to a community would normally have. Um, for example, there are not any of, let's just call them the shout-outs, the, the personal notes and allusions to things that Paul has experienced with this community. Those things are not really uh, in this letter and so what this letter feels like more than anything else um, is sort of like a really broad sermon to a group of people that were within a, 
perhaps a certain region. So some uh, think it was to most likely the Gentile churches in Asia. So when you read through the letter, there are certain things that pop up. But here's the setting that a lot of this may be written into. And let's see if knowing the setting helps us to understand the things we've already learned just a little bit better. Uh, the point seems to be throughout the letter, uh, this letter of Ephesians, that Gentile Christians who were going into the church were adopting an easygoing moral code based on a misunderstanding of some of Paul's teachings. So they weren't really these Gentiles, which remember again, you've got the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles is everyone else. And if they're Gentiles, they've come from a different kind of background than the Jews have come from. So they don't have all of the God history behind them, most likely, that the, uh, that the Jews do. And in fact, they've probably come from different sort of pagan church or pagan religions where they've worshipped lots of gods for lots of things for lots of reasons. So they don't fully understand what it means to live as a Christian, and they're not living up to the right kind of moral standard that they should be. And at the same time, they were trying to push away the Jewishness of some of Christianity. Um, and they were, they were becoming intolerant of, of the Jewish people within their church, and they were ignoring everything that had happened within God's family that led them up to the point of Jesus. So the purpose of the letter then, if it's written to these people, these people who don't have the same God background, that are not living quite up to the right moral standard, that are pushing the history of God away, what are the things that they need to hear? What are the things that Paul would want them to know? Well, now let's look back at it again. If you are in Jesus, you are what? You are adopted into his family. You become part of a bigger story. Now, here's something that's interesting about that idea of being adopted now that we know that there were a lot of Gentiles involved in this. In the story of God, who was already in the story of God? The Jews, right? They are the sons and daughters of God. They are already there. But you have all these Gentiles, right? And who are they? They are the adopted ones. They are the ones who are bring, being brought into a family and into a story that they were not already a part of. Now, that's really good news. It really is. That God is expanding his family and that he's bringing people in who were not always a part of the story. But here's what's important. When you're adopted into the family, you become a real son and daughter of God which means that you are joining up with the story that is already in progress. Their family history becomes your family history. And this new family that is being written out and being uh, explored, you are a part of that too. And, and just because you're adopted, it doesn't mean that you don't get everything that God is offering as well. You do. You get everything that God has or you get all the promises that God wants to give. You get all of those things. And you get the Holy Spirit now in this place to help you become a representative for his family. So in a sneaky sort of way, Paul is reminding them there in chapter 1 
that, look, this is not a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian kind of world. It is a Christian kind of world. Brought together by salvation that God has brought in Jesus Christ. And therefore, whoever you are or wherever you've come from, what is the most important thing about you? No matter where you are, let me ask it again. Getting a lot of like blank-ish stares. No matter who you are or where you've come from, what is the most important thing about you? That you are in Jesus. That you are in Christ. That is the most important thing about you. It's not that you're Jewish and you have this long history. It's not that you're Gentile and you're not trapped in this old history. It's that you are something new in Jesus Christ. You are something new in Jesus Christ. Which is why when Paul writes to them to encourage them in the next paragraph that we looked at in our introduction, what is the emphasis on? It's not on who they are, although he does encourage them and say, listen, I've heard great things about you. But what does he remind them of? That there is more for them to do. Even though they have a good reputation, there is more for them to do. There are more ways for them to grow. May the eyes of your heart be opened. May you have more wisdom because you don't fully understand what it means to be adopted into this family. And your eyes need to be opened to that. Your eyes need to be opened to that. It would be like, you know, um, it would be like climbing the stairs in a building that is perpetually being built up and up and up. How close are you going to get to the top? Well, if it's still being built, you're probably going to stay the same distance from the top as when you started. And this is something that he wants them to know, that Jesus, in his power, is unbounded, that there is nothing that is more powerful or more great than Jesus is. And this is what you're aspiring for, to bring this kind of power, this kind of change, this kind of life into the world, to live out that mission, not the mission of what you think you are or who you think you should be. Are you with me? Because this is relevant to us. You don't even have to look real hard to find out how it's relevant to us. That Jesus is above all things, that God has adopted you for a reason, and that you have an opportunity to tap into the power of God in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit to change the world around you. Wow, that's a lot in one chapter. That's a lot in one chapter. So let's look at chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, we get more into the meat of what Paul wants to say. Now again, if he's writing to a group of people who they're squabbling a little bit over where they came from, over who's better, over what they can and cannot do, what is it that Paul wants to remind them of right away? Here it is, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, so we've just moved on. You have the power. You have all these things. All these things are available to you, but you need to remember something. What is it that you need to remember? You need to remember how bad off you were before Jesus changed things for you. You need to remember how bad off you were before Jesus changed things for you. Because what is our tendency? Look how great we're doing. Look at all the wonderful things that can happen. Imagine all the good that God can do. But we forget those things. We forget the things that we need to remember. (laughs) We forget the things that we need to remember when we forget this one key thing, which grounds us and anchors us to what the story is really about. Do you remember how bad off you were before Jesus changed things for you? Uh, We moved out here, as I said, in 2002. And uh, Nisha's family wanted to come out and see her uh, on her birthday in uh, June of 2003. And so we had set it up for her family to meet us at Betty's Fish and Chips which I don't know why we did that now, because Nisha doesn't like fish, but I don't know. It was, we, were, we were young and foolish. So, uh, her, but Nisha didn't know her family was coming. And it was like her sisters were going to come, everybody was coming. But she didn't know they were coming. It was going to be this big surprise. So they asked me for directions. And if you don't know where Betty's Fish and Chips is, it's over you know, that direction off of Highway 12. Uh, you just go right there, turn right. It's great. Uh, They asked me for direction, and I I told them gladly. I'm like, you come up 101, uh, you get on Highway 12 West, and you will see it right there on the road. It's just on the right. So I I check in with them, and they're they're still a little ways out, but I told Nisha we're going to leave at this certain time, so I'm like stalling at home. And uh, we, we, we end up, like, getting in the car, and I get, you know, a message. Can you give me the directions one more time? Yes. Highway 101, 12 West. You're going to see it. It's right there. So we lived on the other side of town at this point, And uh, so we come over to this side of town, and I know they're not there yet. So I take some wrong turns. I take some wrong turns, and I'm like messing things up and getting around, and, and then I get a phone call, and uh, it's, so I take it, and um, I don't know where we are, but there's no Betty's Fish and Chips, and I'm like, well, where are you? And they're like, well, we just drove through Sebastopol, <laughs> and I said, oh, right, I said west when it should have been East. And they asked me multiple times. And I said it again. West. When it was actually east. So then I had to act like a real dummy. And I accidentally drove past Betty's. And then I couldn't find a place to turn around. And then I drove by it again and went too far and didn't get in the right lane. I had to kill 20 minutes of time 
pretending not to know where I was going until we finally got there and the whole lunch happened about an hour later than it was supposed to. Surprise! Everybody's here. Um, we live in a world where we as, as humans, when, when left to ourselves, we often choose the wrong direction. Um, but we remain cheerfully confident that we're going the right direction. It's 12 West. I told you it was 12 West. Yes, it's 12 West. And there are some wives in the room that are going, you don't have to tell me this story. I know the story so well. And in fact, uh, sometimes you'll have conversations with people and they'll point out as evidence of being the right direction just how confident they are. It's the right direction because I know it's the right direction. Well, how do you know? I just do. It is. This is the right way to go. So this is the way that we're going. Are you sure this is the right way? Yes, of course. I told you. It is 12 West. When actually... Sometimes we're going the wrong direction entirely. And it's become even more popular, uh, I think, today amongst people uh, to argue that the desires that we have in our hearts, the things that we want to do, the aspirations that we have, if we feel them really deeply, then they must be from God. If we feel them really deeply, then they must be from God. God has put this on my heart. God has, when... We haven't spent any time praying or waiting or listening for God to speak to us. It's just a desire that popped up out of nowhere and we want to attribute it to God because it feels so, so deep. Well, here's my question for you this morning. Is every desire that we have a good desire? I mean, even if we feel really, really strongly about it, is every desire that we have a good desire? Does, does every desire that we have come from the right place? What do you think? No, not necessarily. Here's an even more troubling question. Do we always know if it's from the right place or not? I don't know. We're, 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 we're uh, wading into some muddy waters here, aren't we? A little bit. Okay, let me just complicate it one more step for you, all right? I want everyone to have a headache when they go home today. Are people basically good or are people basically bad? Okay? Chickens. Now, this is a question we would like to ask at a time like this. Um, But in truth, that question, the reason why it's such a lousy question is because it oversimplifies a very complicated issue. Not every deep desire that we have comes from the right place. Sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes my deepest desires are selfish, and they serve me and no one else. But I might be so convinced that they're right that I convince myself they're from God. I know, again, this has probably never happened to anyone else, but to me, I can look back at my life and I can see those moments. And we also know that even the worst kinds of people can do good, and even the best kinds of people can do bad. 
Whenever I get into conversations about human behavior, I always say, this is my, my one mantra about human behavior. Nothing that anyone ever does would surprise me. Nothing that anyone ever does would surprise me. Why? Because we are all capable of very good things. And we are all capable of very bad things. Now, you're already wanting to argue with me about this. But Bryce, I wouldn't do this. Or Bryce, I wouldn't do that. Or blah, 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 blah. But the truth is, we are all capable of anything. And let's get just more succinct about it. We are all capable at any moment of putting ourselves and our stories and our desires first. And putting God, and even not God, other people that we love and care about last. At any moment, at any time. And we saw this over and over again in the story, didn't we? We saw humanity prioritizing itself and individuals prioritizing themselves over God and over uh, other people. We, we saw this happen all the time. And there are the, the thing that we see here in this passage. So look back at this passage with me. Let's read it one more time. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, there's something important that we need to see here. One, before Jesus, this is where we were, period. Okay? So there's no arguing, well... I was okay, or I was not that bad, or I was pretty good. No. Before Jesus, this is where you were. Okay? And there are reasons why you were this way. Number one, there were forces that were luring us to go in the wrong direction all the time, and on our own, we didn't have a really good way to fight it. There was the present, as he calls it, the present age. The way that the world is, is not the way that God intends it to be. The world is against God. And the world that you live in is constantly pulling you to do things that God would not have you do. And so therefore, what seems right or like a deep desire of people who are living in the world, guess what? It most often is going to be against what it is that God would have them do. Because they're not living in God's world. They're living in someone else's world. There is the ruler of the power of the air. And one commentary that I read, it says, it's suggesting that, that Satan or the devil and his ideas and his schemes and his, his, his plans to pull us away from God are just in the atmosphere around us. They're just in the atmosphere around We breathe them in as we walk through this world and live life in this place. And we know that is true, too, from the story. That Satan is constantly trying to turn God's people away from him and trying to influence us to do different things. So what does this mean, Bryce? Like, I'm so confused. Will you just, just say something simple? Okay, here we go. Number one, we know that we have a tendency to make things about ourselves. Number one. Number two, we know that even our deepest desires can be misguided. Whether it's by us or whether it's by the world we live in or whether it's from Satan, whatever it is. Number three, 
we know that we do fall under the influence of this world and of the one who would turn us from God. Number four, the conclusion that I come to from this then is this. Ultimately, who I am as a human in the flesh, in this world, cannot be trusted. Who I am as a human in the flesh, in this world, cannot be trusted. Look at verse 3 again. What did we do? We chose to indulge our flesh. We listened to our bodies. We listened to the world around us. And who did we choose to please? Ourselves. We we chose to please ourselves. And I, as a person, I am inherently, by my very nature, fallible, selfish, and short-sighted. That's who I am. As Paul put it in Romans, there is no one who has done good. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is the simple truth that Paul wants them to remember. Before Jesus, I was dead in my sin. I would not choose God all the time when given the choice. And because of that, because of that, that very fact that I could not make the right choices, I could not be good enough, I could not do enough right things, I could not be enough, God had to do something for me that I could not do for myself. God had to do something for me that I could not do for myself. So what is it then that God did for us? Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. I cannot say this clearly enough. There is nothing you can do to earn the grace of God. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make God overlook your sin. There are no amount of good deeds, good intentions, or good tries that you can perform to somehow make yourself good for God. Instead, God, who has what kind of love? Great love for us. God who is rich in what? Mercy. Chooses to save us. Not because we are worthy of it, but because he loves us and he is rich in mercy. Your salvation is something that God does for you. It's something that God does for you. His grace is what saves you. Well, Bryce, we know this. Been over this before, too. Why are you just repeating things in more confusing ways? I want to I agree that we know this and that we hold on to this, but I am convicted that this particular point is so easy to forget. 
um, how easily our relationship with God can become about how often we go to church or how often we read our Bibles or how much we give or how many good things we do and how quickly we compare ourselves to others and make some sort of spiritual hierarchy. We don't need their story. This is our story. You can't be a part of this because you haven't been a part of the story. These people do this, so they can't. And these people do that, so they can't. And did you see what so-and-so was wearing? Or did you see what so-and-so said? Or did you, you hear those ideas? And the, you know, We are, we do. We do this all the time. We create a spiritual hierarchy in which we often put ourselves pretty near the top. And what we decide and what we want to do, we are the comparison point. We determine what's right or wrong. Now, this is true historically of the people of God. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Look. Two different people in the same situation. Just one remembers something that the other has forgotten. What does the one person know about himself? He's a piece of trash. He knows it. And what does he ask God for? Mercy. And what is just what has Paul just told us God is rich in? In mercy. And the other person is there trying to say how great of a follower of God they are. Who is that prayer about? It's about them. And they're even using something of God to tell others about how great they are. Only one person experienced God that day. Only one person experienced God that day. It was the one who knew they were dead in their sin. And that there was nothing they could do for themselves. And the only measure they had was to ask God for mercy. God, you're the only one who can do something about this mess that I am. So would you please do it? The words of Jesus tell me anything. They tell me that we like to make ourselves more important. We forget what miserable people we really are without Jesus. But here's the thing, and it's why... I think Paul's broken it down this way. When we remember how miserable we were before Jesus, when we tap into that feeling, when we know deep down in our bones that we cannot save ourselves, then that is where something truly magical happens. The acknowledgement of our failure, church, enables God to act in our lives. The acknowledgement of our failure 
enables God to act in our lives. God loved us when we were dead. So he already knows. Who is the person that is having a problem with how things really are? It's us. It's me. God knows how it is. God knows how it is already. And when I embrace who I was before Jesus in that moment of realization, I finally understand that God has chosen to save me. Not because I'm so special and so great. Not because I've done anything. But it's actually better than that. Because you see, God has chosen to love a failure. God has chosen to love a self-centered piece of junk. God has chosen to save that thing. To restore that person. To make that person into something different. And when we know that, that we are not worthy and there's nothing that we can do, then God's love is poured into us in a way that changes who we are. We believe that the love of God in Jesus changes everything. For that reason, from death to life, from death to life, that is what God has done. Amen? And then, miracle of miracles, we are raised up to become something more than what we were under our best efforts. Verses 6 through 10. Listen to this. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is such an amazing grouping of words. This is such an amazing thing for us to see that we need to bask in for just a moment here. In fact, let's read it again. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Where does it start? Church, it starts with this. When we, remember, when we know how bad we were, when we accept Jesus, when we give God the opportunity to pour his love into us, what does God do? God raises us up. But he doesn't just raise us up. He raises us up into the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Us. We who are incapable of sticking with him. He gives us grace and salvation. He raises us up to where Jesus is. And I want you to know, this is a place we have no business being. This place that God puts us. We have no business being there. But he can't wait for this to happen 
so that his incomparable grace, his, in order that he might show the incomparable, I'm sorry, the incomparable riches of his grace, his grace is going to keep on giving to you. He raises you up to this place and he keeps on loving you. He keeps on forgiving you. He keeps on giving you more and more grace. And he brings you to this place that you have no business being. And here is the best part about the whole story. Again, you haven't done anything to get there. You haven't done anything to get there. This is what God has done for you. It is a gift that he gives to you. And if we're to be honest about it, it's a gift that God begs us to accept. He begs us to accept. Not even your faith is your own. Do you see that? Not even your faith is something you've done. God has given you enough faith to recognize who you are, to see who he is, and to allow him. It's crazy. <laughs> crazy to allow him to pour the riches of who he is out on you. Do you see the wonderful absurdity of all of this? It's what it is. It's wonderful absurdity. Paul has to convince us that we're not good enough. He does this so that we can begin to understand the way in which God loves us. And the more we realize how imperfect we are, the more God's love and grace for us becomes so amazing and incomprehensible. You didn't do it. Even better, you didn't have to do it. God did it all for you because he loves you, and so therefore, you don't have to be the overcoming champion of everything in your life. God has overcome for you. You don't have to reach this spiritual plane where you think God is going to love you more. God loves you when you're at your worst. And he's not going to love you more. He can't love you more than he already does. And all he wants is for you to accept him, to accept Jesus, and to say, I know who I am, I know who you are, pour out your grace on me. You don't have to do it. God does it for you. you. You can't do it. God does it for you. You've never done it. God does it for you. All you have to do is give him the opportunity. God, I believe in you. I believe in your son. Wash me clean in these waters. And I'm yours. And then, this is so great, the good that we do is not us, it is God in us. For he created us to do good things for him. It is this amazing love and mercy that poured out on us, that's seeping out of us, that's coming out of our eyeballs. There's so much of it. It is in our words and actions, the way we treat others, the way we carry ourselves, we are walking parts of God's family. And God is the one, God is the one who is rich in mercy and who in his love chooses to pour out all that he has 
this God who loves us who we are. Look, the story of this church, the story of your life, the story of what you've done, the story of your relationship with God is not about you. And it never has been. It's not about us and what we do. And it never should be. The story is about our God. And the story is about what our God has done. The story is about how incapable we are. The story is about how lost we were. And how Jesus changed everything for us. And church, I need to hear this. I need to hear this. Because I struggle with the fact that I'm not good enough. I struggle with having to make all the right decisions all the, all the time. I, I struggle with being the kind of person that you want me to be. I struggle with being the kind of person that you think I am. I struggle with all of those things. And sometimes I am the most guilty of trying to do the most, to make myself the most. But the truth of the matter is that I am someone who is completely dependent upon God. And when I forget, that's when things tend to fall apart. But when I remember that I'm not capable, that I'm not good enough, that there's nothing I can do to earn, it is in those moments where God pours out his love and mercy on me and I become stronger. And it's then that he does good things through me because my heart is open to him. May God give us wisdom. May he open the eyes of our hearts so that we would know him better. May we see ourselves as we are And may we be washed away in the flood of his mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need any prayers or encouragement this morning, uh, we want to let you know that God does love you in amazing, life-changing, earth-changing ways. And we want to be a community that encourages one another in all things. So you have any needs for prayers, encouragement, anything else, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.